welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome back to People, Places, Planet Pod. My name is Dominic Shikitano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. As renewable energy development is happening throughout the country, Changes in environmental regulations and related court decisions are impacting project development. What does this shifting terrain mean for the development, expansion, and maintenance of renewable energy technologies? In today's episode, we engage the experts and listen in on a conversation between two experts on the latest regulatory and judicial developments impacting renewable energy. Our first guest, Brooke Marcus Wahlberg, is a partner at Nossiman's Austin, Texas office. Brooke has been focused on federal and state natural resource issues, particularly wildlife issues, for most of her career. Her work spans across several industries, including wind and solar energy, electrical transmission and distribution, water infrastructure, and timber management throughout the United States. Brooke frequently speaks on federal natural resource issues before national audiences, including the American Wind Energy Association's annual Environmental Inciting Conference. She co-chairs CLE International's annual Migratory Bird Treaty Act and Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act Conference. And since 2018, Brooke has served on the planning committee of the University of Texas Renewable Energy Law Conference. She regularly guest lectures at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law on federal wildlife risk and renewable energy development. Um, Some of our listeners may remember Brooke from two previous episodes of Engage the Experts, where Brooke and a second guest spoke about impacts to wildlife as a result of the development of solar and wind power infrastructure specifically. Um, Today, Brooke is joined by her colleague, Rebecca Barrow, to focus more specifically on recent regulatory and judicial developments that impact renewables. Rebecca is also a partner at Nossiman's Austin, Texas office. Um, Ms. Barrow focuses her practice on natural resource law on a wide range of matters throughout the Southwestern United States. She's assisted public agencies, traditional and renewable energy developers, local governments, and private entities on issues related to the Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act, Clean Water Act, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, National Historic Preservation Act, state and local land use law, and potential implications of the same on project delivery and implementation. So thank you very much, Brooke, for coming on for another episode. It's been great to have you with us a couple times, and we're happy to have you here again. Yeah, thank you, Dominic, and thank you, Environmental Law Institute, for having me back. I've really enjoyed doing these, and I'm happy to be back doing another one today. And thank you, Rebecca, for joining us. I have no doubt that your expertise will make for a great conversation today with Brooke. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. And so before we, I guess, get into the meat of the conversation, I just would like to have each of you introduce yourselves um, briefly and tell us a little bit about how you know each other. Sure thing, Dominic. I'm Brooke Marcus Wahlberg, and as Dominic alluded to, I spend a lot of time doing federal natural resources issues, um, particularly permitting compliance and policy level work. And um, I do a lot of renewable energy project development and review of project development on behalf of project purchasers and tax equity investors. Um, I think otherwise, Dominic, you covered it. Thanks, Brooke. Um, Rebecca? 
Sure. Um, my name is Rebecca Barho. I'm a partner in the Austin, Texas office of Nossaman. Uh, and, and like Brooke, my primary uh, focus is federal natural resource law and specifically the Endangered Species Act, um, National Environmental Policy Act, Clean Water Act and others. Um, I also do a lot of state and local um, environmental work and um, it's it's been really fun. And I, otherwise, I think you covered it. Great. And do you mind telling us a little bit about how you two know each other? Sure. This is pretty great. Rebecca and I have actually worked together since we were baby lawyers. Um, we've worked together for over a dozen years, which I think is, is pretty fun wow. and pretty lucky to have a colleague that works with works together with me on all of these things. So it's it's been pretty fun to work with Brooke for, for more than a decade, um, you know, perhaps because of our line of work and where projects take us. Um, Brooke and I have put in quite a few miles of hiking, running, and walking in various cities and landscapes across the U.S., um, you know, which is a really fun part of our job. There's been a lot of action in the environmental law world lately, particularly in the natural resources and environmental arena where we spend a lot of our time. We wanted to talk a bit about these developments and specifically how they may impact renewable energy development. Okay, so we'll get right to it. There's been a lot of action in the environmental law world lately, particularly with respect to natural resources and in the environmental arena generally, where we spend a lot of our time. We want to talk a bit about these developments and how they may impact renewable energy development specifically. You know, I thought after last year's amendments to the Endangered Species Act regulations, this might be a quieter year, but we've really seen a lot of activity this year, and not just from the agencies, but from the courts as well. We're going to cover a handful of these developments, but to kick us off, Rebecca, if we had to start with one, where would you start? I'd probably start us off with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, we're recording this podcast the week of August 10th, 2020, and just this week, there's been a pretty big court decision impacting Migratory Bird Treaty Act enforcement. Brooke, yeah, do you have so, the stage? Yeah, I'll set the stage a bit with the, some of the history here, particularly with renewable energy. Um, back in 2013, 2014, there were significant criminal settlement agreements with wind energy developers um, on Migratory Bird Treaty Act claims. Uh, those had to do primarily with Golden Eagle deaths, which are protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a strict liability statute, it's a criminal statute, and so the size and nature of these settlements um, made waves throughout the wind energy community. Um, to go a bit further, there's been a long-standing question whether or not the Migratory Bird Treaty Act actually applies to take that happens incidentally. So the Migratory Bird Treaty Act prohibits take um, but incidental take, you know, death or injury that may happen incidental to other activities. So if you think um, skyscrapers in downtown, wind energy, um, various other developments out there, um, whether or not the MBTA actually prohibits that sort of incidental take has been a longstanding question. And there is a circuit split over whether or not the MBTA does extend to incidental take. And even this is an issue for solar energy, as you've probably seen news articles about whether or not solar energy development creates lake effect, leading birds to crash into the panels thinking that it's water. So at the end of the Obama administration, the Department of the Interior solicitor issued an opinion or an M opinion indicating that unauthorized or unintentional or incidental take 
um, of migratory birds was prohibited under that under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, after the Trump administration settled in, a new DOI solicitor issued a fresh M opinion, um, opinion 37050, making um, essentially a 180 degree shift in the interpretation of take under the statute from one administration to the next. Um, under the new M opinion, um, incidental take of migratory birds um, was interpreted not to be a violation of the statute. And as you might imagine, almost as soon as the opinion was issued, um, more than a dozen former Department of the Interior officials from across both sides of the aisle requested the administration pull the opinion back. Um, that was quickly followed by three separate lawsuits brought by environmental organizations, states, and others seeking to halt the implementation of the opinion. The cases were consolidated, and as we mentioned just a moment ago, just this week, a court vacated um, the, the Trump administration opinion and remanded it to the Department of the Interior for additional analysis. Um, we're pretty sure there's a decent likelihood the Department of the Interior will appeal the ruling. Um, but interestingly enough, at the same time as, as these lawsuits were working their way through the court, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was and, and continues to work on a regulation establishing for the first time that unintentional or incidental take is not prohibited by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, following the, the M opinion. Um, the, the service published the proposed rule this past February, and a public comment period on a draft environmental impact statement closed just last month. Um, there's no word on a precise date for publishing a final rule. And of course, to keep things interesting, there's also a bit of legislation floating around that would, would amend the Migratory Bird Treaty Act itself to clearly establish that incidental take is, is a, an actual violation of the statute and would also create a permitting program to regulate and authorize that take. Um, the bill has nearly 80 co-sponsors, including both Democrats and Republicans. Um, Brooke, I feel like I could go on, but can you think of anything particularly juicy that I may have missed? No, really. I think the, the juiciest thing is that there's so many moving pieces. There's this invalidated M opinion. There's the circuit split. There's the hanging rulemaking. Um, there's the potential legislation. And then, of course, we have an upcoming election, which also may shape how all of this plays out. What do you think's next? You know, I think for uh, renewable energy, perhaps the, the next most important thing would be to talk about um, the recent revisions to the National Environmental Policy Act regulations. Um, you know, it, back in July, the Council on Environmental Quality, or CEQ, published a final rule amending these regulations, which had been in place since really since the 1970s. Um, the new regulations take effect uh, on September 14th, and, you know, they largely codified decades of, ex of existing practices, particularly by transportation agencies. But there are some significant departures from the former regulations that may impact how renewable energy projects undergo permitting and NEPA compliance. Really, in my view, I'll go ahead. Nope, keep going. Um, in my view, perhaps one of the most interesting changes um, is to CEQ's explanation of what constitutes a major federal action subject to NEPA in the first place. Um, you know, that issue really has been one that has been battled out in the courts over the years. And in the new regulations, CEQ clarifies that where a federal agency can't really control the outcome of an underlying activity, that activity may not be subject to NEPA review, even when there's some other federal involvement. 
Okay, while the CEQ did not provide terribly much guidance on just how much involvement or control would be required to trigger NEPA, renewable energy projects that need federal permitting for a small portion of their project area or activity uh, may be able to avoid review under NEPA altogether, or may be able to avoid um, as you know extensive review um, as they may otherwise have planned. Um, you know, renewable energy developers may also find some solace in the new provisions of the regulations establishing hard deadlines for completion of the NEPA process, um, as well as page limits on the NEPA documents themselves. Um, Brooke, I know you've been following this too. What's been interesting to watch on your end? Yeah, so these have made headlines, right? Both the MBTA decision that we just discussed and these NEPA regulations, um, the fact that the regulations are being changed for the first time in decades, um, of course, brings litigation, right? There's already been three lawsuits filed challenging the regulations, um, in large part on some of the things that you mentioned already. Uh, there's also the question of those that have NEPA processes ongoing. You know, there's several wind energy developers pursuing permits under various other statutes that require NEPA analyses, with the new regulations going into effect September 14th, depending on where they are in the process, depending on how the agencies want to tackle the NEPA analysis, whether or not the old rules or the new rules will apply is going to be a question. How to apply the new rules is going to be a question. You know, one thing I wanted to go back to, particularly since we're talking about renewable energy here, is climate change. You know, a lot of press is focused on how climate change is being treated under these new NEPA regulations. Oh, Rebecca, do you mind if I kick it to you to talk a little bit about that? Sure. <clears throat> well, like I mentioned, um, Earlier, the new regulations make you know some substantive changes to the way things have been done in the past. And one of those changes that has frankly gotten quite a bit of press is that the CEQ did away with a distinction between direct, indirect, and cumulative effects that they analyze in connection with an action. Um, under the new regulations, the CEQ now requires agencies to examine essentially effects that are reasonably foreseeable and have a reasonably close causal connection with the action under review. Opponents of the regulations have pointed out that the cumulative effects analysis is quite frequently the place where agencies will examine the effects of an action and other federal and non-federal actions in the action area on climate change. Um, frankly, opponents of last year's Endangered Species Act regulatory amendments made similar arguments when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and National Marine Fisheries Service revise the standard for listing species as threatened under the ESA um, to require a component of reasonable foreseeability. The, the way the CEQ and, and the uh, wildlife agencies explained their respective rulemakings was that climate change can still be considered, um, but of course it's now arguable that there's a heightened standard um, that will apply under both statutory frameworks now. Um, you know, the topic of climate change is, is an interesting conundrum, I think, for renewable energy industry, which is a positive force in the fight against climate change, but has also dealt in the past with the challenging task of addressing climate change, you know, in both the NEPA and Endangered Species Act contexts. And I'll just add, um, the NEPA regulations and the MBTA regulations, if they're finalized, um, as with the recent litigation, it's unclear which direction the administration will go. But if these two sets of regulations are finalized, and depending, or MBTA finalized and NEPA finalized, rather, 
if elections result in a flip of the Senate and presidency, it's possible that both sets of regulations are subject to the Congressional Review Act and could be withdrawn. And between the litigation, likelihood of litigate more litigation, Congressional Review Act, and then just a, a new administration, if there is one, um, choosing to repeal these rules, there's a lot of uncertainty in how all of this will play out. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, we, we would be remiss, I think, to also not mention the Endangered Species Act and and a big impact or a big development that renewable energy is, is dealing with, of course, is a court ruling remanding the northern long-eared bat. Brooke, you've been really involved in, in looking at those issues. Do you want to kind of talk to folks about what's going on there? Sure thing. For those of you that listen to the Wind and Wildlife podcast, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about bats. Um, in this case, we're talking about the northern long-eared bat. For those of you unfamiliar with this bat species, it's a small bat species, a myotis species, that's being devastated by white-nose syndrome. But it's found in upwards of 30 states and lives in wooded areas. Um, it was listed as threatened a few years ago, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, under its authority when it lists a species as threatened, also issued a species-specific rule that exempts most activities from the Endangered Species Act's take prohibition unless you're clearing wooded areas close to their hibernating caves or maternity roost trees. That species-specific rule has been instrumental for really all energy development, but particularly renewable energy development. And um, there's a concern about collisions with wind energy turbines. And the species-specific rule actually exempts take that occurs from collisions with wind energy turbines from the prohibitions of the Endangered Species Act by virtue of its focus on wooded clearing uh, close to hibernate, hibernating caves and maternity roost trees. Um, it's also important to note that really any development that clears wooded areas within those 30 states that may have northern long-eared bat is potentially subject to the prohibitions of the Endangered Species Act if this species-specific rule goes away. Um, what happened is the environmental organizations challenged the service on its decision to list the species as threatened as opposed to endangered. Um, the court split the ruling. The, the challenge actually went to both the propriety of the listing of the species as threatened rather than endangered, and then also the propriety of that species-specific rule. The parties briefed the threatened aspect of the litigation, and just this year, at the end of January, uh, the DC District Court remanded the listing back to the service saying the service inappropriately determined that the species was threatened and remanded the listing back to the service for the service to reconsider the species and repropose a listing status for the species. Um, in the interim, while that rule, the listing rule is vacated, the judge did keep the listing intact, so I guess not vacated. The listing rule is intact, but it's been remanded and invalidated. Um, for now, that species-specific rule is in place. So everything is business as usual right now. Um, but depending on what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service comes back out with as a listing finding could send waves through the renewable energy community and then really through anyone within those states. Uh, particularly because an endangered ruling would mean that there's just a blanket take prohibition across all activities that may result in take of the species with no exception. And I guess 
Another significant aspect of this ruling is also that there's quite a few large ranging bat species that are in the listing pipeline for consideration. So the US Fish and Wildlife Service is actually thinking about listing not only the northern long-eared bat now with this court ruling putting the listing back in their court, but also the tricolored bat and the little brown bat. All of these species are up for review over the next couple of years and it's anticipated the service will be making findings. All these bat species cover 30 or more states um, they've all been devastated by white nose syndrome. So how the service ends up coming down in terms of its listing decision um, has the potential to significantly impact any development within those states. Again, not necessarily just renewable energy, but because of the interactions between wind energy turbines and bats, it's a particular note for the wind energy industry. And speaking of large ranging species, there's a few others that are in the US Fish and Wildlife Services um, listing sites, so to speak. So Rebecca, why don't you talk a little bit about those? Sure. I think probably the most um, interesting of the species that's in the listing pipeline is probably the monarch. Um, you know, that, that species has a nationwide range. And, um, you know, as, as those of you who drive cars know, it's virtually impossible to to not hit one uh, when you're driving, um, you know, they're they're everywhere. And so th there has been a question of, you know, if the service lists the monarch, um, how, how do you handle that? Um, so it's worth mentioning this new candidate conservation agreement with assurances that was finalized recently um, for the transportation and energy sectors, which, which provides uh, some pretty strident conservation measures for the monarch on a voluntary basis and provides incidental take authorization for folks who have decided to join in in that plan. Um, the service is set to make a decision in December of this year, propose a decision uh, at the end of this year for the monarch. And it will be really interesting to see whether um, there's enough participation in that candidate conservation agreement with assurances uh, to give the service uh, enough information to, to choose not to list that species. So that will be something uh, to watch. Um, you know, there's there's also a number of pollinator species with large ranges um, that, that are in the listing pipeline or that perhaps there's um, a chance that the service will designate critical habitat. Um, and, you know, over the years, there's been an increasing focus between the impact of solar projects and pollinators and how to handle that. So, you know, really in the in the context of the Endangered Species Act, um, we just really can't uh, stop watching. Uh, there's a lot going on. Well said. Okay, so last but not least, we can't sign off until we at least mention the activities that have happened in the Clean Water Act space. Um, we have the Keystone XL pipeline nationwide permit holding that's unfolded this year. And then we've also had a rulemaking redefining what it means to be a waters of the United States. Uh, the significance of the latter is that the Clean Water Act program um, governs dredger fill activities that occur within waters of the United States. The latest rulemaking makes some changes to what constitutes a water of the United States, pulling back um, ephemeral water bodies, probably most notably for purposes of renewable energy development. Um, before we get into the Keystone holding, let's talk briefly about the Nationwide Permit Program. Excuse me. <clears throat> so Nationwide Permit 12 is one of the nationwide permits that's provided by the Army Corps of Engineers who administers the Clean Water Act program. 
What the nationwide permit does is allow for streamlined permitting, in some cases self-certifying permitting, for minor impacts to waters of the United States. Nationwide Permit 12 in particular covers utility activities, and that can include um, linear utilities such as pipelines, fiber optic cables, transmission, um, transmission lines, and similar, and some of their attendant facilities. Now, wind and solar development aren't, aren't linear utility activities that typically fall within the realm of the Nationwide Permit 12 definition, but wind and solar utility scale development involves access roads, it involves um, collector lines, it involves transmission lines, and so by virtue of those collector lines and transmission lines, um, wind and solar development oftentimes relies on Nationwide Permit 12 as a streamlined way to obtain Clean Water Act authorization where their developments will impact uh, waters of the United States. So Rebecca, if you don't mind, would you talk a little bit about what happened this um, spring and summer with respect to Nationwide Permit 12 specifically? Sure. Uh, many of the listeners, no doubt, will have heard about the Keystone XL pipeline and, and a significant court ruling that was first handed down in April of this year. Um, in short, a district court in Montana ruled that the Corps violated the Endangered Species Act and specifically Section 7 of the ESA when the agency failed to consult with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Service on the effects of the Corps' reissuance of Nationwide Permit 12 uh, on listed species and critical habitat in 2017. So essentially the court vacated Nationwide Permit 12 and prohibited its use nationwide um, due to the Corps' failure to consult. Um, as you might imagine, renewable energy, traditional energy, and others who were using or planning to use Nationwide Permit 12 to construct, operate, or maintain utility lines um, were very troubled by the ruling. Fortunately, the same court mod did modify its order at the request of the parties, thereby prohibiting only construction of new oil and gas pipelines, essentially, um, and allowing other kinds of utilities to proceed. Nevertheless, the Corps and project proponents appealed the underlying decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which then denied the party's request for an immediate administrative stay of the decision. Um, the parties then sought a stay from the Supreme Court um, of the district court's amended order pending the Ninth Circuit appeal. There's, the, the Supreme Court has not yet made a ruling on that and briefing is underway. Um, you know, the district court's ruling could have significant implications to the nationwide permit program as a whole, not just to nationwide permit 12 and not just to renewable energy developers um, if the district court's ruling sticks. You know, all the while, of course, you've got the expiration of the 2017 nationwide permits coming in 2022 and the question of whether the Corps will decide to consult when it reissues those permits. Um, the Corps somewhat has put that question to bed when it posted a pre-publication version of the proposed nationwide permit uh, program reissuance. Um, and, and the Corps explained why consultation on the program is not necessary. This position, of course, could change, um, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on, particularly the, for those who utilize Nationwide Permit 12 on a frequent basis. Um, Brooke, what's what's keeping you up at night on Nationwide Permit 12 these days that I haven't covered? Well, I think really it's the uncertainty of it all. Seeing a oil and gas focused case on specifically the Keystone Pipeline end up with a decision that rendered um, one of these streamlined permits unusable even for just a couple weeks really threw development into a tailspin you had projects that were going to construction that had construction crews mobilized you had 
projects that renewable energy projects that were going through financing that then had to explain whether or not their construction approach was going to comply with the Clean Water Act now that that nationwide had been rendered unavailable. And so you had a lot of uncertainty in project planning. You didn't know how long it was going to last. You didn't know whether other nationwide, such as the one for access roads, was going to be implicated by similar litigation on the same type of claim. And then I think throwing all into it, as you already mentioned, you've got these um, new nationwide permits coming out that could potentially be vulnerable to similar claims, depending on how the appellate litigation goes on the Keystone case. And then you also have to throw it all together, the waters of the United States definition, which is now in play. It went effective at the end of June this year, but is also under, I think, nearly 10 lawsuits right now. So even even the question of whether or not something is a water of the United States to determine whether or not they need to use the nationwide permit program to obtain Clean Water Act 404 authorization is something that's going to be in flux for a while. And knowing that there are potential vulnerabilities in the nationwide permit program, depending on how things play out with the courts, um, you know, that that decision really functioned like a light switch for a minute where for a few weeks, everyone had to reconfigure and figure out what they were gonna do to handle not having the nationwide. And again, even though it's an oil and gas decision, um, renewable energy companies use nationwide permit 12 with, with great frequency. And so they had to figure out whether there was another permitting pathway or whether they needed to change their engineering approach to avoid all impacts. So I think all of that just is um, a extreme reminder of contingency planning in times of uncertainty. And it seems that with the developments this year, <laughs> uncertainty abounds when it comes to renewable energy project development. So Brooke, I think as we wrap up here, it might be worth a quick mention that, you know, there are some states that have been concerned with where things are going on the national scale and have decided to make changes in state law to things like how they handle take under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, how they deal with um, potential loss of pollinators in their states. So, you know, for, for those of you who are watching renewable energy development and uh, environmental regulations, you know, be sure not to ignore what's going on uh, in the states in which you're practicing. I think that's an excellent point, Rebecca. There's a lot of activity happening through state siting permits and local ordinances and things in an attempt to fill some of these gaps um, that folks may feel have been created by the recent regulatory and court developments. Well, I think that covers what we were going to cover today. Thank you, Rebecca, for joining me here. It's been fun to do this with you. I hope we get to do another one one of these days soon. And thank you, ELI, for having us on here. It's always fun to get on and do these podcasts. So look forward to doing more in the future. Thanks for letting me join, Brooke. It, it was fun and uh, this was a, a pleasure today. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.